Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Thirty years ago, U.S. and coalition forces celebrated the liberation of Kuwait from Iraqi occupation in what Americans continue to refer to as the Gulf War. The rapid and apparently overwhelming victory made possible by the decision to limit coalition objectives to driving the Iraqi army back to Iraq inspired both spasms of American patriotism and geopolitical optimism about what President George H.W. Bush called a, quote, new world order, unquote. It didn't take long, however for optimism to fade. The survival of Saddam Hussein's regime, a decade of interminable wrangling over sanctions, mounting evidence of humanitarian catastrophe, and the collapse of the international coalition in the aftermath of 9-11, finally led to the 2003 Iraq War, which marked both the end of American geopolitical optimism and the beginning of a new era of overstretch, frustration, and decline. In the face of that sad story, the Gulf War itself has remained a good war, a success in contrast with later failures. Even the Army War College uses it as the case study for its introduction to strategic studies. And yet, how can we call the Gulf War a success when so many failures followed it? What decisions made during and in the immediate aftermath of the Gulf War contributed to subsequent disasters? And how does the whole thing look? From the distance of 30 years. To address these questions, we are joined today on A Better Peace by Dr. Samuel Helfont, whose article, The Gulf War's Afterlife, Dilemmas, Missed Opportunities, and the Post-Cold War Order Undone, appears in the spring 2021 issue of the Texas National Security Review. Dr. Helfont, an Iraq War veteran, is an assistant professor of strategy and policy in the Naval War College's program at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He is the author of Compulsion in Religion, Saddam Hussein, Islam, and the Roots of Insurgency in Iraq from Oxford University Press, and his current book project, Iraq Against the World, examines Iraq's international strategies from 1990 to 2003 and their impact on the post-Cold War order. He holds a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University, and we are delighted to have him with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Helfont. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here, Sam. So how has the legacy of the Gulf War changed over the past 30 years? Well, I mean, I think you, you know, you hit the nail on the head with your introduction. At first, it was a, you know, a glaring success. Mm-hmm. Everybody looked at it as a model, right? There's been actually a lot of studies, not just at the Army War College, which you mentioned, but elsewhere, looking at the Gulf War as a model for what the U.S. could do. Uh, the critiques early on of the Gulf War were actually that it was too successful and that the United States had overlearned the lessons of the Gulf War, which made us, you know, not prepared for things like uh, insurgency, right? Because we just wanted to keep on fighting the Gulf War because we did that so well. Over the years, I think, especially in the last 
you know, 20 years or a little bit less than that since 2003, people have begun to rethink the Gulf War, right? Um, the, you know, as you have the title of your podcast here, right? A Better Peace, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> Which, of course, you know, uh, comes from the famous, uh, the famous strategist. But, you know, if the idea of war is to, is to create a better peace, mm-hmm. then, you know, we have to think about what the Gulf War actually did. What did it, what did it leave us with? Sure, there were some successes. We we got out of Kuwait. We got the Iraqis out of Kuwait, which was one of the major goals of the war. Um, but it left us in a quagmire, which mm-hmm. we haven't really been able to escape for now more than three decades. Right. Um, and if we're judging war by whether or not, you know, by, by the type of peace that we created, then the Gulf War doesn't look as well as good in retrospect. Um, you know, right away, as you mentioned, we fell into this problem of Saddam still being there him doing all these things that we didn't want him doing. And we struggled to figure out a way um, to deal with that. So um, it's almost as if we're looking at the legacy over the past 30 years. It started very high and it's been a slow descent ever since. <laughs> ever since. And so... Uh, in your in your piece, you talk about uh, decisions that were made during the war and also decisions that were made in the immediate aftermath. Um, I want to talk about this idea of you know, what do you think the United States did right, if this is an appropriate term, uh, in the aftermath of the war, and what did we do wrong? There are a number of things that the U.S. did right, especially in the lead up to the war and during the war. Mm-hmm. Everything went through the United Nations, right? This was diplomacy done very well. The Bush administration pulled together the largest coalition since World War II. And they had a, you know, a fairly clear operational and even up to the strategic level purpose, military strategy at least, of removing the Iraqis from uh, from Kuwait. And then, of course, at the tactical and operational level, this is absolutely a, a brilliant war, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything went so much better than even the most optimistic observers ha- had predict- predicted uh, prior to the war. It turned out that American uh, and Western, more generally, uh, tactics and equipment uh, were far beyond what anyone uh, was, you know, performed far beyond the way that anyone had expected. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was that was really great. Um, during the war and the lead up to the war, there were some errors. There were some things that weren't as clear. Uh, as they probably could have been. Um, even if we look at the objectives, right, if we look at kind of this policy and strategy objectives, the now declassified planning documents that, mm-hmm. that came out, the national security directives, there was one in August for the Gulf crisis that was uh, National Security Directive 45, and then there was one right before um, the war in, in January, which was National Security Directive 54. Um, they lay out four objectives, and they're generally to remove Saddam's forces from Kuwait, you know, establish peace and stability, the, the normal types of things. Uh, now, Bush made a speech on September 11th in 1990 where he laid out what he called a fifth objective. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was the New World Order. Um, and this became the sort of backbone of American diplomacy. Hey, we're, we're, we're fighting this war, but it's not just to fight a war against Saddam. It's not just over Kuwait, because there were some questions, both the United States and internationally, well, 
you know, is this really worth it? Is Kuwait worth it? They sold us a lot of oil. That was great. But hey, Iraq will sell us oil now. You know, there was some quips by senior administration officials that leaked out into the press and were later shown to be accurate uh, descriptions where they said, you know, Kuwait is just a gas station, right? So we have Exxon Mobil <laughs> and now we have Total. What's the difference, right? We buy our gas from a different place. And so the value of, of you know, sending all these troops and uh, spending all these resources and, and possibly losing a, you know, a lot of lives, um, was that going to be worth it? for liberating Kuwait. Um, well, it became worth it when you have a new world order at stake, right? The entire post-Cold War system is gets bound up in, in this in this war, right? It's not just a war over Kuwait, right? This is the fifth objective that, that Bush talks about, this new world order, right? The Cold War is coming to an end. What sort of world do we want um, after the Cold War is over? Do we want a world where you know, we have the rule of law, we have a rules-based system, we have the Security Council finally functioning in the way it was supposed to function with binding resolutions, which are enforced by the international community, right? And Iraq became the, the test case for all those. The problem is none of those objectives, that fifth objective that Bush made, none of that made it into the military planning documents. And none of those, you know, he, he only left four objectives, right? So he creates four objectives in August. He announces this fifth objective very publicly and talks about it with, you know, everyone who's rallying this coalition. And then he comes out with his planning document, NSD-54, in January, uh, which leaves off the fifth objective. And everything is down to military efficiency, right? right. What can we do militarily to, to remove the Iraqis from, from Kuwait? What that does is it doesn't get military planners thinking along the lines of, you know, what happens next? What's the mm -hmm. war termination plan? How does the world look? And how are we going to set up a new world order? Um, a few things didn't happen. One is the war termination plan, but also some of the operational planning, um, especially by the Air Force, you know, did a lot of damage into a, in Iraq, which was probably unnecessary um, and, and wasn't compatible for with building this new world order because you left a, a humanitarian crisis uh, in, in the country afterwards. Well, and that, that gets to an interesting question. Would it have been possible to build a new world order? Like if, if, if say Bush had wanted to include that in the objectives, would it have been possible to do that and leave Saddam Hussein in power? That is a big question, mm -hmm. right? And, and here the, the Bush administration had a, a huge dilemma, mm -hmm. uh, on its hands. First of all, it didn't want to, well, it didn't have the authority, right. To mm -hmm. remove Saddam Hussein. That, that couldn't have been a, a military objective because, um, the UN didn't authorize that. And if this was going to be a war based on the new world order and it's, you know, uh, rule of law and, and all that sort of thing, um, the UN hadn't authorized regime change. Right. Also, a lot of American allies weren't so excited about removing Saddam Hussein as bad as he was for the Saudis and um, some of the other Gulf coalition members. They understood that Iraq was a majority Shi'i country. And that um, Iran was just next door, right? Everything that we've seen post 2003. Right. And, and they weren't so interested in seeing a, a regime change to that extent. Um, that doesn't mean that Bush didn't try, right? They did try. Mm -hmm. It was, it was mm -hmm. actually, you know, during the war, um, the idea was, hey, we can hit him with a, you know, decapitate the regime, right? Just take Saddam out in a missile strike or, or bombing raid. And they tried from day one mm -hmm. to do that, right? Um, they also thought if they weaken the regime enough, 
that Saddam will fall to some sort of internal forces, right? So there was seems to be some idea. No, it was never stated bluntly, but there seems to be an idea that the Bush administration wanted regime change. They thought regime change would occur somehow, and they didn't really plan for Saddam to be around for very much longer after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, if a some sort of, I mean, the ideal situation for Bush, right, if there was going to have a new world order, um, would have been for a general or somebody else to step in, um, remove Saddam in some sort of internal bloodless palace coup, right, and take over, but then cooperate with the world, right? That would have right. been the most optimistic That would have been thing. ideal, right? If the, the ideal. An, an assassination or a, uh, a, 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 a bloodless coup in the middle of a bloody war would have been very convenient. Whether or not they could have ever had a new world order um, or something that was helping build towards a new world order with Saddam in place um, is is open for debate. There were some decisions made very soon after the war was over in the spring and summer of 1991 that the U.S. was going to press forward uh, with policies that were designed to basically remove Saddam from power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the sanctions and the way the sanctions were built, um, removed any sort of role for the Iraqi regime um, in governing the country, right? So um, they had a a strict embargo and there there were plans from the summer of 1991 on to supply the population with food and medicine, um, but they cut Saddam out of that that deal and he wasn't willing to... um, he wasn't willing to to abide by by those by that game that the Bush administration was playing because it was clear that they were simply trying to eliminate him. Right. Um, there is an open question: could have could if once it became clear that Saddam wasn't leaving, um, if the Bush administration had adjusted in the summer of 1991, there were some options mm-hmm. put forward from the UN um, and other members of the Security Council to figure out a way to bring Saddam back into the fold. Um, and whether that would have worked, I mean, we don't know as historians, right? We can't, we can't look back and say, (laughs) Hey, this would have definitely worked or this wouldn't have worked, but there were some options there that weren't tried, um, to, you know, to give up on this idea of regime change and then work on a a different, towards a different policy. Right. Well, and, and that's actually the, the, the thing about historians, right? I can't tell you what's the right thing to do now, but I can tell you, uh, I can tell you 10 years from now, why, what you decided was inevitable. And I can also, and I can also tell you, I can tell you you did it wrong. Um, but I, but I, I am fascinated in your article, which of course we recommend to all of our uh, listeners. You talk about the the UN's proposal for humanitarian assistance to Iraq, and how that became the oil for food program that the United States was willing to accept. Can you briefly explain what the difference was between what the UN had proposed initially and what eventually ended up happening? Sure. So the Secretary General um, created a, you know, designated a man named Sadr Adin Aga Khan, who was a kind of senior UN statesman, to go to Iraq in the summer in July of 1991 and, you know, figure something out, figure out some sort of sustainable future for Iraq. Well, what's going to happen? So he goes to Iraq and he sees what happened um, there during the war, right? Uh, there was a lot of the strategic bombing campaign that, that occurred during the war, uh, where the Air Force felt that they could win the war just by 
attacking strategic targets, not necessarily the, the Iraqi military, but, you know, infrastructure and um, means of revenue and other things like that, power plants, um, which, you know, sort of have the Iraqi regime implode mm-hmm. during the war, right? And this way you don't even have to worry about the military because the whole regime is already imploded. Well, what that did is it left, you know, just a landscape of disaster in Iraq. People struggled to find clean water. There was disease outbreaks. Uh, and sanctions were making this worse. Right. Um, and when Sadr Din Aga Khan comes back to the UN, he says, this is the situation. We don't have enough money to rebuild Iraq, to handle this humanitarian situation. There's no way that outside donors are going to be able to meet the needs of the Iraqis. The only, the only way to do this is to use Iraq's own resources, its own oil, mm-hmm. to finance Iraqi rebuilding. And he created a scheme with the Iraqis um, where everything would be monitored through banks in the United States, but basically Iraq would be able to sell its oil. And this was actually allowed under the uh, under the, the relevant uh, UN resolutions uh, because Iraq was allowed to meet its humanitarian needs, even if it was to sell resources. That was allowed under the embargo. It just had to be, um, it had to be um, approved by the sanctions committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he comes back and he says, Hey, we can do this. We have monitoring mechanisms. Iraq can sell its oil through these, um, you know, through these mechanisms, they'll get humanitarian supplies, right. We'll be able to s- see what they're buying with this. So they can't buy weapons or, or, you know, anything like that. Um, and they can start rebuilding their country, right. Mm-hmm. At least supplying humanitarian needs, immediate humanitarian needs for the people. Uh, the U.S. didn't like this, right? Because the U.S. was still under the mindset of no, Saddam. We can't re-empower Saddam, right? If we, if we give him this money back and we give him the ability to dis- distribute uh, resources and, and what else, whatever else inside Iraq, then uh, this is going to allow him to sort of re-entrench his regime, and we don't want that. So we came up with an oil for food scheme, which was in uh, in August, so the month after, right? Um, we we blocked the U.S. blocked that proposal by Sadr Adin. And came up with his own proposal, which was basically the same thing, except the UN would distribute the food, the food and humanitarian humanitarian resources. Right. Um, so the UN would sell Iraqis oil. The UN would then take that money, buy whatever supplies were needed for rebuilding the country, and the UN would distribute those supplies um, and goods within Iraq. So this all sounded much better to the Bush administration. They were the ones who came up with this. And uh, it passes at the UN. You know, everyone is sort of goes along with it, even though there were some members uh, on the Security Council who preferred Sadr al-Din's um, proposal. But they go along with it. Uh, and they run straight into a brick wall where the regime says, we're not doing that. If, if you're cutting us out, we're not cooperating. And... You know, Americans are kind of looking around and say, hey, listen, people are starving in your country. And Saddam goes, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, this is a, you know, a violation of our sovereignty. It's humiliation. Um, uh, and, and we're not going to do it. So the U.S. and its allies, including the French and the Russians at this point, all blame Saddam. Right. They don't put any blame on the United States or the sanctions. They say if Saddam wants to feed his, his people, he can. We have this oil for food uh, program. So. You know, it seemed that the U.S. was winning diplomatically, right? But over the long term, um, for a country like Iraq, with a regime that simply doesn't care about the welfare of its own people, um, they're going to win. 
right? This is, a, you know, what I say in the article is you end up with the United States playing a game of chicken uh, hmm. with the population of the Iraqi people against Saddam's regime. The difference is that the United States cares, at least more so than Saddam does, about the fate of the Iraqi people. Um, so it's not going to win that game. Uh, and over the long term, it doesn't. Well, and, and here I think this is a one of the problems when we talk about sanctions as an alternative to kinetic uh, hard power solutions to problems is on the one hand, the argument for sanctions is it's a way to, uh, coerce a regime without having to, without having to blow things up. Um, and that's very appealing even, and, and it is appealing on humanitarian grounds. However, sanctions have direct humanitarian impacts. And if you're dealing with a regime that is more than happy to use its people's suffering as a way to sort of counter coerce, right? So as you mentioned in your article and in, in, in your other research, right, that Saddam realized he could use the weapons of the weak. He could make the United States do things or not do things by mobilizing public opinion about the damage being done to the Iraqi people, even if he himself doesn't really care about the Iraqi people. Um, none of this should have been a surprise to the people in Washington. But how do we explain the... Uh, the let's say the unwillingness of decision makers in Washington, either in the Bush administration or later on in the Clinton administration, to their, their unwillingness to just say um, there's a limit to what we can coerce the Iraqi regime to do because, and we know we don't want to fight another war. Um, instead of emphasizing sanctions, even perhaps we should just be shifting towards some form of normalization. So there's a few things going on here. Mm -hmm. um, that, that helped to answer this question, mm -hmm. I, I, in, in my humble opinion. <laughs> the first is that this is all new. Yeah. Um, sanctions were not, I mean, they had been designed, actually, it's it's funny to, or not funny, it's, it's sort of depressing to look at the evolution of international opinion on sanctions really coming from out of this experience with Iraq in the 1990s. Um, sanctions had been designed, in, these international sanctions, the type that were applied to Iraq in 1990, uh, were really developed by peace activists and anti-war activists, you know, over the late 19th and through the 20th century right. as an alternative to war, right? Right. Um, and, you know, when the UN was developed, they had this sanctions regime built into it, right? Uh, the problem was that as soon as the UN comes into being, the Cold War sets in and no one can agree to apply this types of sanctions. There's a few cases, you know, um, when they actually, the UN tried to enforce its, its security council resolutions. Um, one was, you know, the fluke case of, of Korea when the Soviets just weren't, you know, they were boycotting temporarily. Right. Um, and then there was a case of Rhodesia, which, you know, everyone agreed that this was just appalling and, but it was too small to really be an example. Um, and so you get to 1990, and now all of a sudden the Soviets and the Americans are on the same side and say, hey, you know, we can do this, right? Um, so this is not really just about Iraq. This is about a tool that was developed, you know, over a century um, to be an alternative to war. And they weren't really sure how it was going to work. No one would have known how it was going to work because they hadn't really used it yet. Um, it was very blunt. You know, now we have developed smart sanctions, which are, mm -hmm. you know, more targeted Right, using a scalpel versus a sledgehammer. I think that's Obama used to say that. Um, but they didn't have any of that back then. They just had sanctions, right? <laughs> Blanket right. sanctions across the, across the entire um, country. 
and or you know blanket embargo is a kind of like World War One type scenario, right? Um, so on one hand, you have to cut the cut the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, some slack in that they simply didn't know this was a new tool, right? And they weren't sure how it's going to work. Right. Uh, on the second thing, I would way I would explain this, and it's it's very similar, or very closely related to the, what I just said, is that this wasn't necessarily just about Iraq. This was about this new tool and this new way of organizing the world, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, Iraq was, you know, the internationalists with Bush and then Clinton, you know, they really planted their flag, you know, especially the George H.W. Bush administration. They said, this, this is what the world is going to look like. And we're going to show you by what we're going to do in Iraq. We're going to show you that international sanctions can work. We're going to show you that the Security Council resolutions can be enforced in a way um, that upholds international law. So what you end up with is a situation where you can't really back down off that because you're not just giving up your policy on Iraq, right? Right. Um, Now, all of a sudden, you're giving up claims you've made about world order itself, right? About a much broader... um, set of policies and goals, which go far beyond whether Saddam Hussein stays or goes, whether he lets inspectors in or doesn't. Um, it has to do really with what kind of world you want to see in in this post-Cold War period, which is what makes Iraq different than somewhere like Somalia, right? Where no one ever said, hey, Somalia is going to be the center of the new world order. Um, and when Somalia went bad, the U.S. just left, right? They just said, that's it, we're done. Um, they couldn't do that in Iraq because it they had tied Iraq to all these broader, you know, grand strategic ideas about mm-hmm. world order. So is it fair then to say, based on what you just said, that the the Bush administration basically set a trap for itself by over uh, overhyping the advantages of the war in Iraq? Or did or can we say that they didn't uh, uh, that they misunderstood the amount of work that would go into actually making this vision for a new world order centered on the transformation of Iraq to work. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those can be uh, can be true, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they they didn't understand um, what this was going to take. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand how resilient Saddam was going to be, mm-hmm. um, and because of that, they set a trap for themselves. And they set a trap for themselves in a number of ways. Uh, you know, this new world order that Bush talked about, it, it wasn't just about, you know, the rule of law and the UN. It was also supposed to be a kind of a kinder, gentler world, right? A, mu- right. a more humane world, right? Yes. Where, um, you know, you see these discussions by UN officials at the Security Council, and they're saying, even the Secretary General says, you know, this is not really war as we know it. Even if we have to use military force, um, this is not going to be like other wars. Because we're doing this in the name of, you know, international law and enforcement. Um, and this is going to reduce undue, you know, suffering by, mm-hmm. you know, by people of the world, right? Um, so in some ways, Bush there allowed these expectations to be set very high, um, it, it really unrealistically high, I think. Um, there's no way, and, and Bush had no intention of carrying out a war um, which was going to reduce, you know, suffering in the ways that uh, was being discussed, um, and also tying it to um, these broader, bigger ideas. Um, you know, it was a double-edged, double-edged sword. 
One, it let him sell the war in a way that he wouldn't have been able to sell it before, right? Um, this was something that was actually hotly debated in the United States. It barely passed um, mm -hmm. the authorization for the use of force in Congress. Um, and you can argue that had he not tied it to these broader ideas, it probably wouldn't have passed. People would have said, what are we doing there? Kuwait. Why do we care about Kuwait? Mm -hmm. um, but if it's about what the post-Cold War looks like, about you know cooperation with Gorbachev and the Soviets um, and building this kind of idealistic new world order, then, then all of a sudden it makes sense. Right now, the value of the objective is, is much higher for us, and we're willing to expend our resources on, on a project like that. Um, but they didn't understand what the follow through was going to uh, going to entail. Well, and uh, I have a couple of uh, a couple of big questions, and then one uh, one really big question um, in the last seven eight minutes we have here. Um, so the first really big question is: often uh, distinctions have been drawn between the the sober realism of the H.W. Bush administration with regard to the Gulf War and the uh, irresponsible uh, policies of the W. Bush administration with regard to Iraq. But when I hear you describe the way the H.W. Bush administration, especially in the summer of 1991 after the, the war was, quote, over, how they dealt with it, um, I'm not sure that I see a strong distinction with regard to, uh, with an attachment to realities, um, or an awareness of the limitations of American power. It sounds like the HW Bush administration, um, perhaps suffered from many of the same faults that would plague the subsequent administration. Do you think that's true? I think that it's true to an extent. Mm -hmm. Um, I think certainly this idea of looking at Bush as a cold, you know, hard nosed realist, um, has been actually historians that are working on the Bush administration. Now I'm a Middle East right. historian, right? right? But, but, but there have been a few books that have come out recently, which have sort of reevaluated Bush and, and have seen him more, seen this idealistic streak mm -hmm. in Bush's ideas, uh, mm -hmm. in his, in his speeches and his policies. Um, and, you know, even going back to his, his, uh, his inaugural address, um, in, in 1989, he's, he's talking about democracy and liberalism as being um, one of the, you know, the sort, of, sort of pinnacle of, of human of, of human politics. Right now, he is very realist uh, in the policy sense. Not talking about like academic, you know, neo realism, but but he's very realistic in his dealings with the Soviets. Right, he doesn't push in certain areas um, where he could right. have. He gets, you know. So, some people who are more idealistic are pushing him to move faster in Poland or in the Balk in, in the Baltic states, uh, and he sort of holds back. Right. But he does have this streak of idealism. That I mean, if you read that speech that he made on September eleventh, nineteen ninety, right. to Congress, where he sells the war, I mean, you're not going to get much more idealistic than this. <laughs> it is. Yeah, and I was going to say the uh, the irony of the date on which he gave that yes. speech uh, you know, can't easy be lost on anybody, right? It's easy to remember. Yeah. Uh, well, well, and with with that in mind, then I want to flip it around because you are, you know, I've, it's been unfair. I've been asking all these questions about American policy when you are a Middle Eastern specialist, and indeed the the real power of your research in this article and in your book and in your forthcoming book is your work in Baathist archives and your work in Iraqi documents. Um, do you think we should reconsider? our understandings of Saddam Hussein as a strategist in the way that he handled 
the war and the aftermath of the war? It depends on what your, you know, what, what your starting point is. Okay. I, I guess. Good. Excellent. <laughs> because, Excellent point. Um, Good. You know, you might have to reconsider. There are a few different understandings of, of Saddam. One is mm-hmm. that he was a political genius. Right. right? Uh, and the other is that he was basically incompetent and stumbled from, you know, he was just a, a tin pot dictator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, either of those extremes, I think, would have to be you know, reassessed. Okay. Uh, I think what comes out of looking from Saddam's angle mm-hmm. uh, at, at the 1991 war, what he did throughout the 1990s and what he did, uh, you know, leading up into 2003, is you see some some things that he does really well strategically. Yeah. Right. And some assumptions that he has that are really bad. He's almost the opposite of the United States in the way he looks at the world. The United States tends to look at the world through the lens of, of you know, the military instrument of power. That's how we do it. That's part of the reason that got us into trouble in the Gulf War. Right. We, we won on the battlefield. So therefore, the war's over and, and, you know, we've won. Right. We can go home and have a ticker tape parade. Meanwhile, we've left an absolute mess of a country, uh, which comes back to, you know, undermine uh, undermine our goals and our interest. Iraq, on the other hand, doesn't really look at these military victories or military strategy in the same way. Saddam is much more politically minded, right? Uh, Even the way he fights the war itself, you know, he takes really two offensive actions in the war. One is he, um, he goes and takes over this town, the Saudi town of Kafji. Mm -hmm. And the other is that he launches missiles at, um, at Israel. He launches some at the Gulf too, but but the big ones, you know, the big move he made was to launch his missiles at Israel. Now, in both of these instances, American strategists, military officers and, you know, others have, have looked at that and said, why did he try to do this? And they've tried to figure out some way in Kafji or, oh, this must have made sense. You know, he would go there and what was his next target? You know, that's not what he thought at all, right? That's not what he, <laughs> uh, Saddam, for Saddam, this was just you know, flag waving, right? It was it was creating a spectacle, a political spectacle, right? So that people on the streets of Cairo would rise up and <laughs> and support him. You know, right. uh, look, Iraqi flag is flying over this Saudi town. There's no operational plan there, right? Um, the same with these missile attacks in Israel. I mean, they're symbolic. Um, in fact, you know, he the Scud missiles. Some of them had concrete warheads, right? And American military is that strategy. Right? Concrete yes, right. some of them had concrete warheads, and and some of the, the military strategists were, saying, what is he doing? What? Why? Is, it, is this to go? Is he trying to penetrate? And they're trying to think of all these military reasons that this might be that he might have done that. Uh, after the war, he told people, you know, people why he uh, he told his interrogators what happened. You know, he wanted them to be like the Palestinians who are throwing stones. I, I was just I was just thinking about that. Is that he here? He was he was throwing stones. He was throwing them a longer distance and maybe heavier is, stones. These are symbolic. It's symbolic hmm. acts, right? So he's not thinking in the way of you know this Clausewitzian logic where you start with a policy and you you know you create a strategy from there and you, from from the strategy derives operations and ta- none of that is going on, right? Uh, this is about politics and winning support. Um, so it doesn't work very well in a war, hmm. um, but it does work very well after the war. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. Saddam is able to outmaneuver the United States politically. Uh, and the U.S. is basically doesn't know how to deal with this. Right. Which is a problem we've had in, in other, other cases, too. Right. You know, influence operations that Saddam is carrying out 
um, are not that different from influence operations that other countries, you know, carry out against the United States today. And just as we struggle with these today, we struggled with them um, in in the '90s when hmm. when Saddam was doing it, right? And Saddam was actually able to achieve a lot of his goals uh, in the '90s with this outlook. So he was able to he and he, you know, it's, it's very clear. He starts off with a a goal after 1991. He says, "I'm going to divide the Security Council and make it so that they can't impose these sanctions on me." Right. I'm going to open up and become, you know, open up my uh, diplomatic connections, my economic connections and return to normal without really fully cooperating with this right. uh, this regime, this international regime, which I think is a violation of our sovereignty. And he goes about and does exactly that. Right. And hmm. the U.S. is basically caught flat footed. They don't know how to deal with it. Um, Saddam runs into trouble in 2003 because he seeing the world politically, he says, look, America, there's, you know, the largest the largest protests in history took place against the Iraq war in 2003. The security council is divided and Saddam looks that up out at the world and says, see, I'm winning. Right. Uh, and in the post-war interrogations, not just of him, but all, all of his senior officials, they thought there's no way under these political circumstances that the U S can actually invade and overthrow his regime. Uh, they'll be stopped somehow. Right. Um, they just don't have the political support to do it. That turns out to be a very bad assumption, right? So, you know, you can learn a lot about what you call influence operations, political warfare, different people have different names for it, uh, and its successes and the types of things that that it can do by studying Saddam. But you also look at his limitations, right? If you have uh, a president named Bush (laughs) who has a big military (laughs) um, and is willing to use it, then these types of influence operations and political operations... um, just aren't going to be that successful, right? Well, so so Sam, uh, in in the last minute and a half, I've I've yep. got to ask you this question, and that is when we teach the war college at the, here at the Army War College, when we teach the introduction to strategic studies case study of the Gulf War, um, for the past few years, the writing assignment at the end is to have students write a brief essay answering one question, and that is who won the Gulf War and why. Um, if you were to write that essay, what would your thesis be? Oof. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, just the fact that you have to uh, think about that tells <laughs> right. you something, right? right. Um, I mean, I guess I would still say that the United States won the Gulf War mm-hmm. um, because there were probably were some ways for it to handle um, the peace differently right? Which would have led to different outcomes. Right. That being said, the way that the U.S. did fight the war um, did not help in a lot of ways to, to achieve that peace. So yes, the U.S. the U.S. wins the war, I guess, as I think through this, but, um, but it certainly shouldn't be held up as, as a model mm-hmm. uh, for, for how to win a war, right? There's things that the U.S. did during the war, um, which weren't very good for the post-war period. Um, and then in the war termination phase, and there was no war termination. They, they didn't mm-hmm. even think about it. Uh, right. you know, yeah. Or some people were thinking about it, but they, they never got a chance to uh, to actually come up with a plan, coordinate it with operations and, and, um, and implement. There was no war termination strategy that was implemented during the war, um, which, um, which is never a good thing. 
generally not a good thing. Well, that's a thought for us to end on now. Obviously, this is a complicated subject. I encourage our listeners to read Dr. Helfont's essay uh, in the Texas National Security Review. Uh, and, uh, and while you're at it, you should read his first book on religion and politics in Iraq and the, the uh, roots of insurgency. And we look forward to your forthcoming book. But for today, thanks so much, Dr. Sam Helfont, for joining us on A Better Peace. Thank you, Ron. Well, you bet, Sam. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. If you have not yet subscribed to A Better Peace, we implore you to do so. And after you have subscribed, because of course you want to subscribe, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, which helps others to find us so that we can broaden the audience for these conversations. This conversation is over for today, but we will be back and we hope that you will join us. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.